Well, that was amazing worship through song. You guys have great gifts from the Lord. I, that, was, that was wonderful. Thank you. And you have to forgive me, Mike. I didn't get the memo to not wear a suit here. <laughs> There's always one Mike in every church, I promise you. Because I go to a lot of churches and I fill the pulpit. And I don't do it out of disrespect. I do it out of respect for this pulpit and for your pastor, your, your preaching pastor. And um, so anyways, I, I apologize for that. If we're talking about forgiveness, let's just get this right out. Right out. Please forgive me for wearing a suit today. One guy from Orville's like, man, did you come? Did you drop out of... Uh, we're tractors or cats, by the way. Cats are tractors. Learned that the hard way. But he says, you look like an alien. You just dropped out of here. We don't wear suits in Orville. And I said, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. So I was just testing his sanctification. So when Pastor Anton invited me back the next week, I wore a suit again. So now I have a reason to wear one, right? Well, it is good to be here. Uh, this morning, I'm going to talk about the topic of forgiveness. And that song that's, that we just sang was an amazing song. I've never heard that song before. With all my writing, um, I got my dissertation I, at Southern Theological Seminary. I wrote on forgiveness. And it's, it's just amazing. I never came across that song. But that was, that was a very awesome song on it. But in 2011... Post-seminary, I just finished seminary, I began meeting with people who were seeking counseling and discipleship. I remember just drawing a line in the sand with my father-in-law, who's the senior pastor up at Open Door Community Church, Pastor Kerr, and just through a challenge from another pastor, uh, Pastor Stuart Scott, who, who said, hey, just follow your people. You know, he was trying to emphasize the reality that when you pastor, you also are supposed to be discipling your people in the trenches. So be very careful of preaching the sufficiency of God's word and then referring them to somebody else down the street who has good intentions, but just follow up on them as a shepherd. See, see what you find out. It didn't take long for us to realize that people were the product of their labels, where they're being diagnosed, not scripturally, but through mainly the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. Um, and people were the product of embracing this idea of victimhood. There was little or, or no talk that I had heard of, of the transformation that comes from the gospel, how Jesus changes us from the inside out. So we decided, in much faith, to say that we're not going to send people out anymore when people come to us with their problems. Now, Hear what I'm saying. We're not physicians. We have not been trained in the human body. If somebody has a, a body problem, God in his common grace has physicians. We gladly tell them to go see the physician for that problem. Even on many levels, psychiatrists who are physicians, you got to be careful there because they have been trained to deal with the brain. And we openly embrace any area of common grace there. But when it comes to the matters of the soul... I believe that the Bible teaches clearly that the matters pertaining to the soul are for the strict ministry of the Word of God. So fired up about this, we were exposed to everyone and anyone. I was in the third phase of the ACBC. Some of your ladies are doing that here. And it's not a rock band. That is the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors, mainly in Southern California, 
um, from the Master's Seminary. A lot of those faculty members are on um, that council. So I took it on. I was meeting with a guy named Wayne Johnson, and we just opened it up. And the first person that came to me named Tom, fictitious name, just, just for the sake of uh, him. This is 2011. He comes to me with mental health labels. He has psychosis. He's bipolar. bipolar. He has schizophrenia. schizophrenia. He has PTSD, etc. He was the poster child for mental health. Second, a woman named Lucy... As she, was, she came to us completely broken about her husband of 12 years who had been molesting her biological daughter during junior high and senior years of her high school. Thirdly, this, this was my first exposure to biblical counseling. Thirdly, a married couple came, to, came uh, to me for help, and I came to find out that they were living in, incestu- in an incestuous relationship You see, the man had married his daughter's wife. So needless to say, I was in over my head. Each one of these cases would involve understanding forgiveness. And this is what I want to discuss this morning. I've entitled the message this morning, Preparing Your Own Heart for Forgiveness. So if we're going to prepare our own heart for forgiveness... We have to have a starting point. If I'm driving to uh, Sacramento, maybe someplace in Roseville, and I don't know how to get there, I'm going to pull up my map quest. I may ask, hey, Siri, how do I get to this place? And she's going to give me a starting point. And that starting point will lead to a destination. And I will be wise to follow that destination to get where I want to be. May I suggest to you this morning that when it comes to forgiveness, We must have a starting point, and the starting point is the Word of God. So if you open up your your Word, I still have have a Bible with pages too, Um, but if you open it up, the starting point, and you look at Ephesians 4.31 with me, I just want to kind of give you the helicopter view of forgiveness. Ephesians 4.31 says, Be kind to one another. Tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. All right, that's something we need to pay attention to. Because with all the, the, uh, the things that come with forgiveness are hard questions, and that really needs to be the lens by which we're seeing everything else. The question we have to ask is, how has God in Christ forgiven us? That's the first question. Secondly, if you turn to Luke 17, verse 3, Jesus in Luke 17, verse 3, gives a very, very helpful um, overview of the whole process. It's really talking about conflict resolution within the household of God between brothers and sisters in Christ. That's the context. But then he lays out just, just a very helpful template, if you will. On forgiveness. Verse 3 says, Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. 
So Jesus, in the word of God, teaches his disciples about the right attitude they should maintain towards others who have sinned against them. And this is what we're going to find first. Okay, so, so when I, whenever I'm talking about forgiveness on the counseling and discipleship side, that template is always before me. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, um, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. 98% of my time with that person struggling with forgiveness issues is on the first part. Pay attention to yourselves. And the reason why that's so important is because that is what people can control. So that's where I spend a lot of my time with them. So this morning I want to look at Mark 11, verse 25, with that idea in mind. This is one of those passages in Mark eleven twenty-five, 25, where Jesus is teaching us how to pray, pay attention um, to ourselves. We're going to camp out here for the rest of the time. So for some of you, Steve Lawson says, don't date other passages while you're preaching. I've been dating a lot of them during this, this, this time already, but we're going to camp out in Mark eleven twenty-five, And we're going to explore this together this morning. Mark eleven twenty-five. Jesus says, Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer... Believe that you have received it, and it'll be yours. Verse 25, that was verse 24. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. So this is really something that Jay Adams, if you get, some of you guys are familiar with him, he's, he really started the conversation on forgiveness and this was a passage that he honed in on at Mark eleven twenty five, and And the reason why this is so popular within people that do what I do is because it, it carries with it that idea is how does someone maintain an attitude that will, that will still glorify God in the midst of whatever they're going through. So this passage, I want to draw out a few things. And let me just say time out. I have like very thorough notes on here, like four pages worth of notes. If anybody's interested in that, please um, email me, and I'll be happy to send them to you. So if you're one of those ones that are like trying to take notes, um, try to get the big picture, but I'm going to be flying through very fast this morning. So the first thing we need to understand about Mark 11.25 is it's surrounded by a context, right? So that would be your first, your first point if you're taking notes. What is the context of Mark 11.25? Well, in order to get the good context, you've got to go back to 11, verse 20, when this conversation started. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain... Be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it'll be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it'll be yours. And whenever you stand praying, and that's, that's where he goes into that. So let me draw a couple things out. Number one, Jesus is teaching his disciples 
a lesson about a withered fig tree. Number two, Jesus uses this moment, as he often does, as an opportunity to apply a lesson about prayer. Verse 24, he says, Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. So that's the context. I'm not going to deep dive into that, but that's the context of this idea of whenever you stand, pray to God, forgive. Let's look at the circumstances that surround uh, this particular passage. So in Mark eleven twenty five, Jesus is describing a worshiper who is pl- praying to God, and this is key, alone. Okay, I, I need to emphasize that again. Jesus is describing a worshiper who is praying to God alone. You see, this occasion is different from the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6. In the Lord's Prayer, in some Lutheran churches, they still kind of, kind of do it as a congregation. They say the Lord's Prayer is part of their service. It's meant to be prayed together with others who believe in, in the Lord Jesus Christ. But this prayer in Mark 11 is different because it's just the worshiper alone with the Lord. So you could say it like this. As we gather together as saints on Sunday morning and we scatter to where the Lord has us, wherever we're at in our own devotional life, this is the kind of prayer that Jesus is talking about. So number two from Mark eleven twenty five, just another another thing to draw out. Jesus communicated the necessity of forgiving the offender whenever. Whenever. So whenever a worshiper stood praying, he needed to be aware of anyone that he would need to forgive. Jesus knew the importance of dealing with conflict quickly. Paul also knew the importance of dealing with conflict quickly. Quickly, in Ephesians 4, he says, Do not let the sun go down on your anger. It gives the devil an opportunity. An opportunity for what? If you're walking not according to the Spirit, what are you gratifying? You're gratifying the desires of the flesh. And if you take a stance in your heart to not deal with your anger quickly, the evil one will use that as an opportunity to steal your devotion away from the Lord. So he's communicating in this way, and he's saying, whenever. So keeping keeping short accounts and dealing with sin quickly keeps the devil from obtaining a foothold in unreconciled relationships. So that's the, the context, the circumstances. Let's look at the command. In verse 11.25, Jesus commanded his disciples to forgive anyone with whom they had a problem. So you may be asking, rightfully so, how will I know I'm a worshiper if I have a problem with anyone? Or if someone has a problem with me? Well, you'll know that. um, I don't have my, my PowerPoint with me this morning. But you'll know that based on what's going on with your relationship to the Lord. I want to suggest to you this morning that when it comes to forgiveness, this is a worship issue. This is a worship issue. And why do I say that? Because whenever you stand praying, Jesus commands us 
If someone has anything against us, he commands us to forgive. One of the key diagnostic questions you can ask yourself if you're struggling in this area or you're helping someone else who's struggling in this area is check in on their prayer life. Have them write out their prayers. See what they're praying. Why would you say that? Why would you, isn't there, there prayers between them and the Lord? Yes, they are. But if you're trying to help them and they're struggling with forgiveness, then you want to see if they, they're understanding. I'm telling you, because it is a worship problem, you will see very little about following this command with Jesus the Christ. You understand what I'm saying? If you are in a position where you have unreconciled relationships with people in here, let's get personal. The first thing I would advise you to do is check in on your prayer life. Not specifically that you're praying, but what are you praying? Right? So this is a command from Jesus. Number two, Jesus commanded his disciples to forgive their offender for anything. So come on. You're saying, think about the three people that I talked about when I started this sermon, right? You mean to tell me that I have to tell a woman that I'm trying to help that she just needs to forgive her husband for these ludicrous acts that he's been doing with her daughter? You mean to tell me that I just have to tell this guy that has been diagnosed with these labels for mental health that you just need to throw everything out the door and just move on and forget, for, just forgive? You know, that included a lifestyle of his, his father abusing him. That included his grandma abusing him. That included him being shot by one of his family members. So these, these issues of PTSD in this young man's life were real. They were real. Or, or what, are you, what are you supposed to do? Are you just supposed to you know, tell the other couple who's been married uh, when they should not have been married um, that just, you know, just to forgive each other? You know, those, those types of things. But isn't Jesus saying that we're to forgive anybody for anything? Well, yes, he is. He is. I never forget. I come across this a lot. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke. Focus a lot on that. Never forget talking to a young man who was caught up in sexual immorality, very uh, new, being married. And we dealt a lot, a lot of our time and our energy. It was a, it was a couple that I was counseling, and, and um, for about three months, we're dealing with the idea of pay attention to yourself. If you, if you have sinned, yes, he had sinned, you know, uh, rebuke. There was the rebuke and repent, and he repented. And it was clear, it was clear that he repented. But then I never forget the stance of the wife and her saying, you know, I, I hear what you're saying. I, Jesus' teaching is very clear. She grew up in the church. She was part of a, uh, her dad was an elder. She knew the teaching very clearly, but she said to me, uh, Pastor Silva, I, I will not forgive him for what he's done. And I said, well, here's the deal. There's one particular Christian I cannot work with. Remember this. If there's a lack of knowledge and you don't, you don't really care, you don't care about the knowledge, and where's my knowledge coming from? The Word of God. If, if you don't have a, a desire to look into the Word of God to see what God's Word says about things, I can't help you. Number two, if you know what the Word teaches, there's a knowledge of it, maybe you don't know how to apply it. Right? You don't know how to apply it, but you want help knowing how to apply it. 
I can help you, but if you don't want help knowing how to apply the Word of God, I can't help you. And the third one, which is kind of like the umbrella that overlaps everything else, that is, if you don't have a desire to do the things that Jesus is calling us to do, then I can't help you. So there's a lack of knowledge, there's a lack of skill, and there's a lack of will. And whenever that's operating in the heart of a Christian, I can't help them. And it's a waste of time for both of us, for us to go on, if that's the stance of their heart. So I gave her four passages. I said, look, you know the Word of God? I'm going to give you four passages. And I said, I want you to camp out on these four passages, and we're not going to meet again until you have a change of heart. And unfortunately, I can't do that because I'm not the junior Holy Spirit, I have to put you in touch with God's Word because God's Word judges the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And right now, what's going on in your heart, you need to to meet with God alone. So I challenged her. A week went by, no call. Praying, praying that God would work in her heart. Two weeks go by, no call. Third week, she calls me. Pastor Silva, we need to meet again. I said, what happened? Well, the passage that you gave me about the parable of the unforgiving servant in Matthew 18, I was reading that, and I read that over and over and over again. I read it 30 times in one day, and God was clearly teaching me in that word that I am the one that's been forgiven much, and I need to forgive. So I am ready to forgive my husband. I'm going to need a lot of help. And I said, well, hey, your heart stance has changed. Let's meet together, and we, we, we move forward. Anything. Anything. And that's a tough one for the person that's been called to forgive when that repentance has occurred. Number three, Jesus commanded his disciples to keep on forgiving their offender for anything. And I love this language because this this idea of keep on is the verb tense. And so other words is saying you need to forgive, but you also need to keep on forgiving. And the reason why this is so important and this is such a huge nugget is because this pretty much describes our hearts as we await glorification and we're living in between the reality of salvation. And we're just in between that progressively through through discipleship sanctification. And this is our heart, is it not? That we want to do the things of God. But sometimes we don't do the things of God. Right, And so we'll take a stance in our heart one day that I will forgive this person. You say, I'm going to do it. And then what ends up happening? A thought comes and it takes you captive, right? And then you're like, and this is what's so important because now Jesus is like, keep on forgiving. Keep on forgiving, right? So forgive once and for all, but keep on forgiving. And this is exactly what all three of these people had to do in each one of these cases is they had to forgive, but they had to keep on forgiving. There's another nugget here in Mark 11.25. The word for forgive is a word in the Greek which means a fie me. A fie me. And what that means is to release. To release that person. So oftentimes this comes into the factor as well. I've done everything I've done to do, Lord. What you've called me to do, Lord. I've paid attention to myself. I've confessed where I need to confess. I'm repenting where I need to repent. And I'm asking for forgiveness from this person. But they still have a stance in their heart that's just like, like the woman that I was telling you about. I'm not going to do that. The beautiful thing about a me is it's in those instances where you release it to God. This isn't just releasing it to anybody. This is releasing it to the one who controls all things. 
The one who has the power by his word to sustain and hold things all together. The one who owns a cattle on a thousand hills. The one who has made it so that we do not have to do this on our own. In other words, we don't have to be the vindicator. That's God in Romans 13. God will vindicate those who do not come to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ because if their sin is not laid on on his hands, as we sing about, right, as far as the east is from the west, that's all on them. And that's Hebrews 4.13, that everything will be laid bare before the throne on whom we must give an account. God's going to vindicate, no doubt about it. We're also not the disciplinarian. That's God's job. In Hebrews chapter 12, it says that God disciplines those he loves. If someone has a stance in their heart where they're like, hey, I'm not going to do this, what does God do? He lovingly disciplines them as a son and daughter. You don't have to do it. Third, in one case, uh, you know, the law had been broken, you know, with the uh, incest, incest case, right? The law, the girl whose daughter had been this. It had been broken. So Romans 13, God even has ministries in place that are there to serve him, civil authorities. People do need to go to jail when they break the law, right? So Ephiemi is releasing it to the one who controls all things, right? And I'm all for, I know in our community we have this thing called the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. And we, even by saying that word, you're just like, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, yes, but listen. I want to suggest to you this morning that the supernatural work of the Spirit happens in the mundane. And it happens when the things that you cannot see, when someone in their heart says, you know what, I'm going to release this to God, and I'm going to guard my own heart, and I'm going to maintain an attitude of worship towards God and towards the person that's offended me. When that happens in the heart of of somebody, you better count on that being the supernatural work of God. Let's look at the condition. Because there are conditions. Again, if the Word of God is your starting point, the question that you have to answer is, how has God in Christ forgiven us? Right? You're going to find that if you study this closely, that there are conditions when it comes to forgiveness. You can see it here in this passage in Mark eleven twenty five. 25. It says, if, whenever you see if there, it's there as a condition clause. If you have anything against anyone. The if clause regards the occasion of the situation. In other words, if you, the worshiper, have anything against anyone, you need to forgive. I like how the same clause is used in Luke 17, 3. If your brother sins. It's like, does God not know us <laughs> well? We all, you know, we're going to gum up people like, this is sin. But, I mean, our pastor just got done preaching a, ser- or a whole s- series on Romans 14, which is talking about preferences. Is it a sin? Is it a precept? Is it coming from the Word of God, or is it your preference? There's a difference. And church discipline is not to be enacted if it's off of a preference issue. So I think that's why, in the Word of God, you have these conditions. So if is a condition. Um, So Jesus, he uses what I call the triple A, anything against anyone in prayer. And Jesus knew the gospel is for 
real people. Amen? You guys believe that? Church? I spent three hours with a guy yesterday. It was like the most beautiful thing. And like he didn't know a lick about Christianity at all. But, but I'm like, hey, who do you say Jesus is? He's like, well, he's, he's like a feeling, you know? I'm like, what? Tell me more, you know? And we're talking, and I'm just like, Lord, this is great. You know, I'm like, hey, here's a book by Who is Jesus by Greg Gilbert. I said, will you read this? I said, we'll talk Sunday. Oh, yeah, he's coming back to church and everything. And I'm just praising the Lord for being able to play a part on that level. I'm like, this is someone in our community, Lord. You drew them to yourself, you know? And he's getting ready. He jumps on his scooter in our parking lot, and I hear, sweet child of mine by Guns N' Roses, just blasting. And one of the people in our church said, what is that awful music? And who is that young man? I said, that young man is wanting to know more about Jesus Christ, and he'll be back on Sunday. I hope that doesn't disrupt your worship service. You guys, we have to be edifying the saints, yes, but we got to be reaching out to the lost. And it's messy. It's messy. So... Jesus knew the gospel is for real people. Number three, suffering saints, and and when I say that, I just mean if you're on the other side of sin and you're a Christian, you must be willing to forgive your offender because an unwilling attitude, what it does is it will distort your worship with the Lord. You guys hear what I say? That's why Jesus, you know, as as he's talking about communion, that's why there's so much reflection upon, oh, look, you got my notes up there job. How long have they been up, by the way? You guys are like, I see what you're saying. You're going out. I'm like, cool, I can go out of order now. Nobody's paying attention, you know, but I better get back on page here. But if you think about that third point, um, that's why it's such an issue for us. Look, if you've been born again to the living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and he began that good work, he will keep you until the end, Okay. But if you, are, if you have a stance in your heart that I am not going to forgive. Look, I am very, very careful about telling people they're not a Christian. I will do that on certain occasions. Number one, if they have the person and work of Jesus Christ wrong, that's pretty objective from the scriptures. I can say, hey, based on your understanding of Jesus, you are not a Christian. You, you believe in Arianism. You're, you know, you're, you're following an old heresy called modalism right? Um, So you have black and white when it comes to their testimony and and what they believed in the gospel, right? The gospel that has been received and passed on, it it came in the form of scripture, right? But one thing I'm very careful of is telling people, hey, you're not a Christian because maybe they're going through a tough time in life and maybe it's a season. But what I'll say to them is this, I cannot and will not give you assurance that you are a Christian if you're walking in sin. So in other words, you guys have been to those memorial services where someone dies and you're like, everybody's wondering, like, were they a Christian? And they get the pastor and like, there's just like, they're like, they're pretty much talking them into heaven, you know? I had one of those, a young man in my youth group up the hill, and I said, hey, um, I'm not, one thing to the family, I can't give you assurance that he's in heaven. Because I had a conversation with him two weeks ago before he was shot, and he was clearly, blatantly admitting his, his own profession was he's, he's not a Christian. 
right? So I will not be the guy at the memorial service saying, hey, this person's in heaven now, unless I know clearly that they had trusted in the true gospel and believed it. But there is this thing that happens within the life of a believer where your, your, your fellowship, your relationship to God, your communion with him, that can be hindered if you're walking in sin, right? And if you think about it, that's the beautiful thing about God. A lot of our, I, I think Jeremy's doing a study on anthropology and man, but one of the things I've been thinking a lot about is the conscience. Like, that should be part of that study, man. And God has put the conscience in every person, and the conscience is the one that throws guilt when you're walking in sin. And if you think about how beautiful that is, what's the only way that guilt can be alleviated? Through the cross of Jesus Christ. Right? That's a once and for all that I trust in Jesus Christ, that I have been delivered from guilt. You know, all this language will be careful, but you keep on having to come to Jesus at the right hand of the Father in 1 John, confessing your sin. And he is faithful and just to forgive you your sin. So just be careful that we can't have that stance in our heart. There is a picture, I think that you guys have it now, Um, so next slide. See that picture? So this is kind of like Lou Priolo. He's kind of a uh, good, I, li- I like him. He's a good teacher. But one of the things he's taught me is this concept, and I kind of have adopted it to my own content. But you can see a guy with the arrows going towards a triangle, and that triangle represents God. And up above that is the sun, and that just represents anything you're dealing with in life. And it's, the point is, is that it's on the outside. And then when you are in, focusing in that reality that, yeah, this bad has happened to me, but I'm going to keep God, and, and the triangle, I would say, represent God's word. I'm going to keep God's word before me, and I'm going to try to see this perspective, God's word, and then look at that situation. Look at, look at that, that circumstance, right? What ends up happening is... If it gets reversed, and this is where a lot where I see people, they're seeing their circumstances, and then they're trying to hang on to define what's going on here in the Word, right? So, so keep the Word of God before you, and be able to see your circumstances through the Word. And when you do that, if you're in proper alignment with God, you will be in proper alignment, or can be. It depends on what they do in their own heart with others. Does that make sense? So next slide, I'm going to move through this one here, and look at the second condition, which is the the next slide after this one. So there's another condition. It says, so that your father may forgive your trespasses. So Jesus uses the phrase, your father, to identify this kind of forgiveness as parental Let me explain this. As I've studied forgiveness, one of the issues that I see is a lack of clarity in the point that I'm going to make. And I haven't seen anybody draw it out yet. It's what I'm I'm writing a chapter on in a book with multiple authors. And I've got the forgiveness chapter, but I'm going to, this is kind of a sneak peek for you, okay? Um, But if, when you talk about parental forgiveness, If you're going to understand how God in Christ has forgiven us, God the Father in Christ has forgiven us, we must distinguish forgiveness as it relates to three points in time in the life of a Christian. 
Here they are. There's that idea of positional forgiveness. Okay? What is positional forgiveness? This is what happens in the moment of salvation, right? It's that time when I'm no longer trusting in myself, but I'm trusting in Jesus who died for me, right? And he reconciled me to the Father that he took my sin upon himself, that he was a substitute for me, and that he took the wrath that I deserved on himself. And so he is my propitiatory sacrifice. Okay, that's positional forgiveness. Perfect forgiveness, which is on the the back end, it's the next slide, is heaven, right? So I call it summation, perfect forgiveness and summation. What will perfect forgiveness look like? What What will forgiveness look like in heaven? Well, it's a lot different. Sin is not inevitable in heaven. We will not have conflict with one another in heaven. There is no need for forgiveness in heaven. It's Past tense, we have been forgiven and we'll be operating within the whole spectrum that comes from a new resurrected body and a heart that is, is, is the, the old flesh, the old man has been done away with, passed away, and, and you're just 100% wired for worshiping God in heaven and perfect fellowship with God the Father through Jesus Christ and perfect relationships with each other. So take a look around, okay? You guys are going to love each other in heaven. No struggle. Okay? What's in between this reality of positional forgiveness in salvation and the other bookend, which is perfect forgiveness in summation, which is just another word for glorification, what's in between that is this reality of parental forgiveness in sanctification. I would challenge you that when you're talking about things about forgiveness, that you begin to ask yourself that that question. Are they talking about positional forgiveness? Is this perfect forgiveness? Or is this parental forgiveness? Because if you understand it in this way, when you get the clauses like, if, if your brother sins, well, am I supposed to forgive this person? If, well, if they repent, well, isn't that a workspace righteousness? Yes, it would be if you're talking about positional forgiveness. But in parental forgiveness, which Luke 17, 3, Mark 11, 25, Matthew 18, all the passages therein, are all parental forgiveness passages. There is conditions for forgiveness within the household of God. That's a nugget. That's a bonus. All right, I just want to close out with some real practical things. How am I doing on time? Like, not good, dude. You're done like four, four, 40 minutes ago. Um, let me just give you guys, just go, go to you on a practical level, okay? This is where I'm, if, if, you, if you want the notes on this, if you guys are in the trenches of discipling others at that level, please text, please text, email me. I will send you my resources, okay? But this is like ground level stuff. If you're trying to help someone who's been offended, someone who's been sinned against, I would start with these commitments. Number one, I will commit the sinner and his offenses against me, next slide, to God. This means that I will not play God's role as vindicator or disciplinarian. This means that I will work with my local church as a means to do my part to enact. If this, this, if this gets out of hand, I'll go to my, my church leaders, my elders, And I'll ask for help to include others at a level that they need to be included. 
This means that I will not play the role of civil authorities or, or vindicator punishing evil. This means I will not play the role of the conscience to constantly, uh, can you see that you're sinning against me? Can you see this in the word? It says right here. Remember what I said about a Christian who's not ready to receive counsel. There's a lack of knowledge, a lack of will, and a lack of skill. Okay? You don't, don't play that role. Let the Holy Spirit to do that. Okay? This also means I will not play the role of the Holy Spirit who convicts of sin in the life of a believer. You're not the junior Holy Spirit, in other words. So it means that I'm going to come under things like this. I believe that my offender's sin against me was primarily against God. Against you and only you have I sinned, David says in Psalm 51. He understood this reality. The world's means and methods were not working. He thought he had everything swept under the rug, and God, who was in control the whole way on his timing, sent a prophet into his life to confront him with a very, very clear case study, which he was very harsh with, and the, the, the prophet said, you are the man. Right? After that reality, what happened? I need to stop playing games with God. I need to confess my sin to him because it was against God. Number two, I'm going to believe that God will vindicate evildoers. Look, here's the point. Either Jesus is going to cover the sins of this person who sinned against me, or that person is going to spend eternity in hell dealing with God's wrath and vindication. I believe that God will use this church and compassionately shepherd them through the process of church discipline, if that's what's involved. I believe that God will employ his servants of civil authority to punish evil. I believe that God will seize the conscience to bring a sense of guilt to a person's heart. And I believe that God's Spirit will work in the heart of the wayward sinning saint in his own timing and bring that person to this area where he confesses his sin, he counts on his forgiveness, he's controlled by the Holy Spirit, and he keeps counting on that control. That's commitment number one. Let's look at commitment number two. I will commit to guarding my own heart against sinful emotions. Our thoughts and our attitudes determine what we feel. They determine our emotions. My emotions are actually the byproduct of my thoughts and my attitudes. And emotions, in reality, are a window to the thought and attitudes of my own heart. And lastly... We control our own emotions by controlling our thoughts, attitudes, because emotions come from what we are thinking. And if we control our thinking, we control our emotions and feelings. That's a lot. We've got a whole uh, semester of teaching on that, if you want it. And lastly, in this little section of commitment too, no one determines what we feel because our feelings or emotions come from our own thoughts and our own attitudes. Therefore, This is going to hurt. Get ready. No one hurts your feelings. You have feelings and emotions of hurt. Why? Because you are thinking certain things about a person and they disappoint your expectations. As a result, you cannot blame anyone for your feelings or emotions. The way you choose to think determines what you feel or the emotions you have. So you know what this means? This means that I will take every thought captive to the word of God, or, or 
take every thought captive, make it obedient to the words of Christ. This means I will be transformed by the renewing of my mind by the word of God. This means that I will guard myself against cynicism, anger, and being critical towards others. And this means that I will not harbor animosity in my heart by allowing anger to settle there. Let's look at commitment number three. I will commit myself to God. Myself to God. I will pay attention to myself. This means that I will confess my sin to God and repent of my sin. This means that I I can control, I can count on forgiveness from God and maintain Christ-like motivations and attitudes towards others. This means I will choose to point at the point of decision to be controlled by the Holy Spirit and not by own wayward desires. I'll follow in the footsteps of Christ, or as Paul Tripp says, I'll trust in God when he moves my heart from thoughts of vengeance to thoughts of reconciliation, from plans of judgment to purpose and love. Thus the worshiper is less concerned about his own agenda, rather he commits to God's agenda, and he denies himself, takes up his cross, and follows Christ. Commitment number four. I will be committed to transactional forgiveness. What is that? That is when on the one hand, you have the person that sinned, has confessed his sins to God, and so God has helped him in his heart to say, I am willing to repent as they come this way. On the other hand, it means the other person, because they've been paying attention to themselves and they're ready to grant that forgiveness, says, I'm willing to forgive. When both of those things are going on together, you can have a transaction of forgiveness, and that is what we call reconciliation. Right there. All right, let's, let's conclude. So the suffering saint glorifies God when he is obedient to Christ's command. In Luke 11.25. The suffering saint will not be controlled by sinful emotions. And the suffering saint will not take matters into his own hands. And the suffering saint, their perspective will be transformed. So a few things to take away from this. First, the worshiper glorifies God because of his obedience to Christ's command in Mark 11.25. The worshiper will obey God's commands regardless of how he feels. Second, the worshiper will not be controlled by sinful attitudes and will not thereby be held captive to obey the devil's schemes. And thirdly, following these principles inhibits the worshiper from taking matters into his own hands. He will not be overcome by evil, but he will instead overcome evil with good. And let me just say this before I wrap up with point four. When we overcome evil with good, we're actually making it easier for the person to do what God is calling them to do. And one of the things I've seen is, I know in my own life, I'm married, I have kids, I have neighbors, I have a lot of people that I'm over, and I'm human. And I have wayward thoughts. And sometimes I find myself getting in the way of what God could be doing when someone has a disobedient stance towards God in their heart. Okay, If I overcome evil with evil, 
Does that make it easier or harder for someone to confess their sin to God and repent? No, it makes it harder. So when you, cap, when you get onto this idea, whenever Jesus is talking about forgiveness in the Gospels, before he starts talking about, hey, this is what you do as far as re- reconciling and moving towards that, you need to understand some things. You need to understand that these are my little ones. They belong to me. So be careful how you approach them. Okay? Number two, you need to realize that the picture that Jesus wants us to have in our mind, if we're doing that, is one of immediate death. And how do, how do I say that? Well, Jesus says that if you are the cause of another believer, one of my little ones, who are suffering, you see this in Luke 17, 1 and 2, he says, it would be better for you if a millstone were hung around your neck and you were thrown into the bottom of the sea. So when I'm talking about paying attention to yourself, Focus on that, right? And then when you're focusing on that, you're like, okay, here's the deal. This person belongs to Christ. Jesus died for this person on the cross. Every sin that's been against me has already been paid for by Jesus Christ. This person belongs to Jesus. I don't want to be the cause of a suffering, you know, cause this person to to be a hindrance, but I want to live in such a way that what am I supposed to do instead? And this is one of the biggest things with forgiveness that I've seen as I've taught around pretty much around the world on this topic. People say, oh, 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 pastor, I hear what you're saying, but aren't we just supposed to forgive, like, unconditionally? Isn't that what the Bible's teaching? Okay, no, it's not, but two. Are you going to tell someone whose daughter has been molested that she just needs to forgive that person? Is that what God teaches Just forgive and forget. That's where I challenge you, church. Get into the Word of God and see what the Word teaches on that. Right? Are you going to tell the one who's, you name it, the broken, broken, broken. You're just going to say, hey, you're just going to forgive that person unconditionally. I would say, no, you do not do that. I see the condition for that, according to the Scriptures, is repentance. And I would say that, what are you supposed to do instead? unconditionally love that person. Isn't that what the gospel teaches us? That I'm going to love this person even if, right? They're an enemy. Isn't that what Jesus did for us? Even when we're enemies, Jesus died for us. So we unconditionally love that person. And when we're doing that, we're overcoming evil with good, and we're making it easier for that work that God's already doing to occur on his timing. And you know what happens in our heart as a result of that? We have the peace that surpasses all understanding, which is what we're looking for. And it's not going to happen as we overcome evil with evil. That's a whole other sermon. Let me close with this. Number four. Lastly, these principles of preparing your heart for forgiveness will transform the worshiper's perspective. Matthew 18, 21 to 35 is a parable that illustrates a person who has been forgiven much. When the worshiper contemplates how much he has been forgiven... The offenses against him will seem microscopic in comparison. Alfred Alfred Poyer astutely conveys this principle. God calls you to consider the offense in terms of your own relationship with him, the one who you've offended, who sought after you and forgave you. Lord, we thank you for this passage. There is so much here, Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would 
apply what needs to be heard to every individual in here? If someone is struggling against uh, forgiving someone else, I pray, Lord, that they would open up your word, that they would commune with you, they would, they would whenever they stand praying next, or they would forgive, they'd take that stance in their heart. If, if it's a hindered relationship, Lord, that has been um, just a broken relationship for a long time, I pray that they would learn the concept of a fie me, is releasing them over to you, allowing you to be God, focusing on what they can control, which is their own hard attitude towards that person. And Lord, in an in a audience this size, there's no doubt those in here who have been abused on the level of just, it, it would not be wise to even enter into a relationship with that person because of the past history. But Lord, I pray that they would focus in on what they can control, which is their own heart. And even if there's boundaries and guardrails around their relationship because of past sin, Lord, I pray that their fellowship and their communion with you wouldn't be hindered because they're going to love that person with all their heart, mind, and soul. Seek to do that. Lord, I pray for anybody in here this morning that may not know Jesus the Christ. Lord, I pray that you would speak to them in a special way with clarity through your word that you are the Savior. You are the person they are looking for. That the world has let them down. That the wages of their sin is death, But Lord, you have drawn them to yourself today to hear that that death has been paid for by Jesus Christ. And if they would just believe in him, believe in Jesus, the Son of God, God the Son, that they will be saved. You are risen from the grave. You're at the right hand right now. And you have all authority, Lord, to grant that eternal life. So Lord, I pray that you would do the work in their heart. And if that is anybody in here, Lord, I pray that they wouldn't leave today without knowing whether they know Jesus as their Savior. Lord, be with us the rest of the week. Bless this church. Bless this congregation who's doing faithful gospel ministry here in Palisadro. Thank you and praise you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.